Hello there. Servus. My name is Haishan Wade, and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical reality of today. Now, what do I have for you today? Well, today we're going to talk about the viewership numbers for the Beijing Winter Olympics, European leaders beginning their reconciliation with Russia, and the Freedom Convoy in Canada. All that and more coming up. Let's get into the rapid-fire news. Presidents Naftali Bennett and Joe Biden talk about recent U.S. air raids in Syria that killed an ISIS leader, as well as the growing Iranian power in the Middle East. And it seems like the Israeli leadership is finally catching on to what I've been observing over the past few months. That observation being that Iran is emerging as the dominant power in the Middle East, and their power is still on the rise. And naturally, Israel, who has made themselves an, uh, a mutual enemy of the Iranians, is opposed to this. They don't like this idea very much, or they don't like this reality very much, and so they're turning to the one country that seemingly cares about Israel, which is the United States. We're certainly the only country willing to lend them military equipment anyway. So, they're leading on their one friend that they have, as Arabia is going for the the rapprochement route out of Iran's sights. So, Arabia's getting on the right side of Iran's rise, and Israel doesn't seem to have that option, or at the very least, they're not willing to take it. So, we'll see what becomes of this. Speaking of presidents, French President Macron has gone on a visit to Moscow for talks with the Russian president, Vladimir Putin. And these come amidst the major war scare going on over Russia and Ukraine potentially going to war. And we have forces in the United States and the United Kingdom primarily being the ones to push for this war. And you have forces in, say, France and Germany saying maybe that's not a good idea. And we'll get into that in a little bit. But for now, French President Macron has gone on a visit to see Putin, and Putin has accepted him. Meanwhile, border clashes between Pakistan and the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan have continued and they have killed five Pakistani soldiers. Now, is it just me? Is it just me? Or is Pakistan always losing with these border skirmishes? Uh, I swear, it's always their soldiers getting killed. Maybe the Afghan just aren't reporting their losses for the purpose of, you know, not appearing weak. As they've only recently reasserted control over the country, the Taliban that is. So maybe they're just not reporting their losses. But we have access to the numbers for Pakistan and so it's providing a, it could be providing a lopsided image of how we viewed the battle. Because we didn't see it ourselves. But 
I swear, it's always Pakistani soldiers getting killed in these skirmishes. Uh, or at the very least, there's always more of them getting killed. So, what does that say about the Pakistani military? Well, their border guard isn't bringing their best. Uh, and the Taliban has been fighting for decades. So at the very least, we can almost guarantee Afghanistan will be an independent country for the next couple decades. Probably 50 or so. <laughs> so uh, there's that. That Good for your Afghanistan. And if you're Pakistani, well, luckily for you, your neighbor just finished a 20-year-long insurgency and probably won't invade you. Because these are not good numbers if you're... If you're in Pakistan, it says bad things about your military, and you have India next door, so. Uh, just little things, it's always the little things. Anyway, in Europe, Austria has been rocked by Mother Nature, and they have received an incredible 100 avalanches in just three days, which have killed nine people as of me reporting this. That is ridiculous number of avalanches. A hundred. I mean, I get that Austria is covered in mountains, but wow. A hundred avalanches. What, what did you do to piss off God like this? <laughs> but legit. Uh, hope for the best for those families, and I, I hope they don't get any more avalanches. I'm sure that's what they're praying for. On the other part of Europe, though, Russia has conducted joint air drills with Belarus, featuring two of Russia's Tu-22M3 long-range nuclear-capable bombers. They practice working in tandem with the Belarusian Air Force and Belarus's air defense systems. So that in the event that, I don't know, someone did something stupid, and we got into a war in, say, Ukraine, where it would be Russia and Belarus against, oh, I don't know, uh, say, Ukraine and <coughs> NATO. The Russian bombers would have experience working with Belarus, and Belarus would have experience working with Russian bombers. So, win-win uh, for the Union State, who may or may not get a very, very big addition to their union state in the form of Ukraine or whatever the the new Novorussia as they might end up calling it in the end so you have Russia white Russia and new Russia because that Novo is new in Russian and Belarus stands for white Russia so uh, a union of the three Russias is, seems to be in order here if things keep on track the way they are but We'll just have to wait and see for that one. And that is the rapid-fire news, so now we'll get into the meat of the episode in just a moment. Alright, we are back, and it's time to get into the meat. So, the Beijing Winter Olympics. Now, this one's sort of been in the works for a little while, and by in the works, I mean it's been on the radar for a while, ever since the Olympics in Japan which were delayed for about a year. So we had those. China was up next. And there was talk about boycotting these Olympics. There was lots of talk, especially here in the United States, about potentially not participating or not sponsoring or even 
having the, the U.S. government do it an official boycott of the Chinese Olympics. So, right off the bat, those did not happen. And now, we have some of these viewership numbers that I'll get into, because a big deal has been made about them. And this is sort of in my arena. I just find it interesting, so I'll cover it. The Beijing Winter Olympics have begun, and the politics surrounding it have, again, also come back to the forefront. And in light of this, I got bored and decided to look at the, <laughs> the viewership numbers. So, the viewership for the Beijing Winter Olympics is indeed at a very low point, as in fact a record low, if I'm not mistaken, especially when compared to the last Winter Olympics, as the Beijing Winter Olympics came in with 16 million views. The Olympics, I believe, are not done yet, so this number can go up, but uh, the last Olympics got 23 million views. So, is it? Uh, and I believe I believe these are the opening ceremonies. I believe these are the opening ceremonies. So while the total viewership for the entirety of the Olympics might be much bigger, these are the opening ceremonies, if I'm not mistaken. So, Beijing Winter Olympics comes in with 16 million views. But the last Winter Olympics, which came, which happened in Korea, and the name of that city, I will not attempt to pronounce. That, that Olympic opening ceremony got 23 million views. So, that's a pretty big fall in four years since the last Winter Olympics. And this is this 43% drop, I believe it was. That was the number being floated around. I do not have the math on me right now, but it looks about right. So, pretty big fall. Lots of hubbub has been made about the fact that it dropped so much, and there's talk about the the talk surrounding that fact specifically is all about China and authoritarianism in China and the Uyghurs and whatnot. But I knew that that was going to happen, so I decided to get some context to see if it was unique to Beijing or if it was a part of some larger trend and this was just, you know, the politics aligning with a trend. So I looked and what I found was that Tokyo, the Tokyo Olympics, also brought in a low audience. You don't know, you want to know what that number was for the Tokyo opening ceremony it was 16.7 million views so right on par with where the Chinese Olympics are right now right on par but even more interesting is that even when you compare the Tokyo Olympics to the Brazil the Rio de Janeiro the Rio de Janeiro the Rio, the Rio de Janeiro Olympics from 2016, those numbers, you get 16.7 million for Japan and 26.5 million for Brazil. Now remember, the Beijing Olympics 
The opening ceremony brought in 16 million, and the Korea Winter Olympics that happened before that had 23 million. So 16 to 23, as opposed to Tokyo and Rio de Janeiro, which is 16.7 to 26.5. So the numbers are actually very similar to one another. When we look at, when we look, when we step back and get perspective on these numbers. Now, these are still bad numbers, right? These are still record lows, 16 and 16.7. But these are, the 16 million for China is not exclusive to the Beijing Olympics, as is demonstrated by the low audience in the Tokyo Olympics. So, very interesting. It seems like Olympic viewership has just been going down over time anyway. Or perhaps it's just getting harder to track the views with so many different streaming platforms and whatnot. Or maybe people are j just aren't watching. I know for my my personal experience that I was unaware when the Japanese, uh, when the Tokyo Olympics started, and I was caught completely off guard when the Beijing Olympics started because I, I didn't know what date they started on. And by the time I learned that they were happening, we were already like multiple days into the Tokyo Olympics and we're already multiple days into the Beijing Olympics too. So just off my personal account, I can believe that the viewership has gone down because I watched the Rio de Janeiro Olympics uh, live. I even saw Michael Phelps make that crazy face. <laughs> if you remember when he was uh, getting ready for his his uh swimming race and he was sitting in the chair with that death stare that was so <laughs> that was incredibly funny to catch live and then it, uh, it took about an hour for some pictures of his face to start popping up on google and it, that, that was very it was a very fun time i was watching i was at my cousin's house and we were watching it we were making jokes about how he was gonna <laughs> <laughs> we are making jokes about how he was going to blow up the Olympic arena if he didn't get a gold medal on his last race. <laughs> ah. But anyway. But anyway. Uh, it seems like viewership for the Olympics is just down. And not specific to the Beijing Olympics. So we'll see how many other people come to this uh, conclusion as me. Although I'm, I'd imagine... A lot of people are just going to run with the number that it's down by 43% and leave it at that. So there's your, there's your little bit of context out of your lovely geopolitics, what, narrator? Your geopolitical narrator, your broadcaster, there we go. But uh, your show host, there we go. Your geopolitical show host. But since we're done with the Beijing Olympics, we can now move on to another interesting topic, which is Russian reconciliation. So in the past week, we have seen a number of European leaders all reach out to Vladimir Putin. Why? They're reaching out for talks. Viktor Orban, he visited Putin. The British Prime Minister Boris Johnson talked to him on the phone. 
he had a separate, he had another meeting, well, another phone call that was scheduled with Putin. He missed the call, and the Russians basically gave him the cold shoulder and talked to French President Macron in, in place of Boris Johnson, who was late to the call. And But eventually they did have a phone call, and apparently nothing much was made from that call. But it was Boris Johnson who initiated that contact. So even though nothing much came from it, it's important to know who's initiating with what with who. Who's initiating what with who. And it's the leaders of other European countries initiating dialogue with Russia. So we have Viktor Orban visit Putin, Boris Johnson talked to Putin on the phone, Macron uh, talked to him on the phone, as I mentioned, and Macron is also going to be meeting with Putin today, in fact, uh, Monday, so by well, by this point he's probably already met with him and is probably on his way back to France if he hasn't gotten back already, but Macron's met with him, and even Germany's chancellor is currently set to go see Putin in person in Moscow, I believe. So, lots of leaders in Europe reaching out to Russia, and given the tensions that have been arising these last few weeks over the Ukraine-Russia war talk, Putin's position has been strengthened. And I I thought this would happen. I said as much. Uh, shoot. But here we are. Putin's position has gotten stronger, and he hasn't had to do anything. He just sat there and let the idea that Russia was going to invade Ukraine get to the minds of the people in Ukraine and in America and in Europe. He sat there, did nothing, made de- made counterpoints and demands for NATO, uh, effectively asking for a <laughs> effectively asking for a restraining order. That's what I like to call it, where a legally binding document restricting the growth and expansion of NATO, particularly that expansion towards Russia's borders. I've also made it known that I believe that to be a very reasonable request and that my government sees things very, very differently. But in light of all this war talk over a potential conflict between Russia and Ukraine, Putin's position has gotten strengthened to the point where it's almost an obsession. I got into that obsession in last episode and we talked about how whenever people talk about Russia and what Russia might do, it always immediately jumps to a conversation not about Russia, but about Putin. So, I I, I, got, I dived into that a little bit in the last episode. So, I'll just leave that there on the table in this one. But his position's gotten stronger. And that's increasingly evident with all of these leaders of all these European countries coming to him for talks. Uh, instead of just letting America handle it, they're taking direct action on their own. As I think that they don't trust the U.S. administration on this one. I don't either. But <laughs> but anyway, I think I think this is uh, 
a very sudden development. It's easy to see why this development has happened. Uh, again, none of them want a war with Russia, and they don't want to get drawn into a war in Ukraine against Russia, because America decided that that's what America wanted to do, and, well, it's not in the interest of many countries in Europe to get involved. Now, you could, you could say otherwise, you could, especially if you're on the, on the side of this debate slash argument slash conversation where you believe that the United States and the West has to stand up to Russia in Ukraine. I would say that that is a very wrong take on this situation, but if that's where you stand, then maybe this isn't a good development to you. Uh, but to me, I think it's a positive development. And one of the things that I take away from this development is that it leads me to believe that the long, long, long isolation of Russia from the European politics uh, is also coming to an end. I believe that. And it's not through any deliberate attempt at bringing Russia out from the cold, uh, like what France was trying to do in certain instances. Uh, very inconsistent in those instances, but France did make the attempt multiple times, namely under Macron. But I think Russia's isolation from European politics is coming to an end through the force of practicality. The force of practicality is what's ending Russia's isolation from Europe. Uh, namely, because you can't ask the Russians to de-escalate the situation in Ukraine if you don't speak to them. And if you don't speak to the guy at the top, well, then you're not really speaking to the country. You're not, you're not really speaking to the leadership of the country at all. So, in off sheer force of practicality, European advisors and secretary, ministers of foreign affairs and secretaries and whatnot have to talk to the Russian, to their Russian counterparts, uh, namely Sergei Lavrov, and presidents and prime ministers of Europe have to talk to Putin. You're not going to be able to ask them directly to de-escalate the situation because um, they believe that Russia has to de-escalate in order for things to simmer down so that that's the perspective they approach this with uh, different from what I've established but given that that's their perspective you're not going to be able to ask Russia to de-escalate unless you're talking to the Russian government and the Russian leadership practicality you have to talk to them if you want to get anything done. Which means you can't isolate Russia and still ask for these things. You have to, well, you have to end that isolation. You have to bring them back in to the conversation. And this is what I believe has been missing from a lot of European politics. Russia, this giant country... 80% of their population lives in the European part of Russia. Russia is in Europe. 
versus a European country. They have territory that expands into Asia, but they're predominantly a European country. So, they should get a say in Europe, but they haven't been. And so you've had this strange environment where Europe exists until you get to the Russian border. And then it's just not Europe, and Russia's not allowed to have a say in anything. Anything that is Russian is automatically evil. And that's just not healthy. It's not healthy. It doesn't help. And it, it, it certainly doesn't do anyone any good. Especially when you're getting all of your oil and natural gas from Russia. So, I believe that by bringing Russia back into the fold, not because they want to, right? I mean, let's be clear about that, European governments have made it clear as day that they don't really want to have Russia be a part of the conversation again. They don't want that. They prefer if it's just the EU or just NATO. Get a little bit of the U.S., but keep the U.S. out as much as you can. But they don't really want Russia to be a part of conversations regarding what happens in Europe. But Russia's always going to be there, and they're always going to have a say anyway. But by force of practicality, because again, you can't ask them to do things unless you talk to them. Russia's isolation is coming to an end. So that means Russia is going to be reintroduced to Europe's regional politics as a not outside force this anymore. So that that's a pretty big shift. It's a very very big shift, and at the forefront of this major shift in European geopolitics are France and Germany. These are the two countries I view as being at. The very, very tippy top, the very sharp end of the spear, so to speak, on bringing about this change. I believe France is responsible because, again, Macron has made repeated attempts at some type of rapprochement with Russia before. They, He's talked to Russia. As far as I know, he's, he has the best relations of any... West European government with the Russian president just because of that. So, just because of his diplomacy, he's already in with Russia. Not quite not quite to the same degree that France and Russia were in, say, the late 19th century, where they were forming an alliance with one another. Although I still view that to be a, a possibility at some later point in the future when the geopolitical scene changes a little bit more. But France, reaching out to Russia, has constantly provided a sort of lifeline so that Russia was never, never completely disconnected from Europe. There was always France. But then there was Germany. Germany has now two pipelines from Russia to Germany. They, they go straight from Russia to Germany. No transit countries, no transit fees. It goes underneath the Baltic Sea and comes back up in Germany. 
Nord Stream 1 and Nord Stream 2. Now Nord Stream 2 is finished, but is not yet pumping natural gas to Germany. Nord Stream 1 is, but Nord Stream 2 is not yet. So, I guess we can use that as a sort of a gauge as to where Germany stands. Because if they leave the pipeline off, then that tells you they've basically chosen to continue the isolation of Russia. Uh, and they, have, they haven't come to a complete decision on this. They, this is just sort of uh, something we can use as an indicator. So, Germany is reaching out to Russia as well. And we can use Nord Stream 2 as sort of a definitive marker of where they are. If they have come to the conclusion that they need to have good relations with Russia, they'll reopen the pipeline. If they come to the conclusion that Russia can be sidelined in favor of good relations with, say, America, you'll see the pipeline remain shut. I believe that pipeline's going to open up. That's what I believe. Germany has been, at, at again, one of the countries at the forefront in reaching out to Russia. They're part of the Minsk agreements, so every time Russia brings up the Minsk agreements as sort of a beat-down and counterpoint to the West demand that Russia de-escalate, Russia always brings up the Minsk agreement which automatically brings Germany into the conversation because they're a signatory. So, France and Germany are working with Russia. Well, they're talking with Russia. They're not quite working together yet. They're talking. Germany is talking. They're namely concerned about their energy and where they get it from. They they also are concerned about their relations with the United States. But Germany is talking to Russia as a part of that Minsk Agreement format, and France is right there with them. So these two countries are leading in the sort of the, the reaching out to Russia. Germany for the sake of their energy and their economy, really. And France, out of, well, the geopolitical interest of the French president, Macron. So for two very different reasons, you have these two countries reaching out to Russia uh, in light of the Ukraine war scare. And that, what that does is that it it kind of it kind of messes up the NATO cohesion thing. It really messes that up, because uh, I'll add I'll add that that this last minute realignment that France and Germany have kind of done will kill any chance of NATO fighting for Ukraine. It'll, it'll just kill it because there won't be cohesion. So, you have France and Russia talking to Russia instead of at Russia like America and, U and the UK do. You have them talking to Russia, and this last-minute realignment is going to kill any chance of NATO fighting together like, for Ukraine. 
That doesn't mean that there still isn't the potential for a war, as the US and UK are still pushing for one. But it does mean that NATO is not going to be unified on the matter. France and Germany are two very, very big countries in NATO. And if they opt out, then that means opting out is an option that other NATO countries are going to take in the event of a conflict. So you're going, you're going to see, in the event of a conflict, a fracturing of NATO on the spot. And that fracturing would kill NATO if there was a war. Because at that point, Article 5 means nothing. And if Article 5 means nothing, well then the alliance, in an official capacity, would also mean nothing. Now, I'll be honest, I would find this to be quite the positive development. It would give me carte blanche. Carte blanche to argue from a moral perspective as to why we should never have been a part of NATO. Uh, It'll make my job easier. It'll make my position easier to advocate. Much, much easier. And perhaps then we'll have that withdrawal from Europe that I'm so long awaiting. Like, like many ancestors have come before me who got to witness American troops leaving Europe after, say, World War I, but then had to watch as they stayed where they were in World War II, and after World War II, and then for five million years after, but I might get the unique fortune of seeing the troops come home again. So, I look forward to this. I don't look forward to a war over Ukraine. I don't look forward to that. I see that as an L waiting to happen. But at the very least, the, fracture, the f- visible fracturing of NATO to the point of no repair would mean the end. NATO, and it would mean the end of any viable reason for the United States to be in Europe, and any viable means for us to be in Europe as well. Maybe Britain would offer itself up as a base, but Britain is an island off the coast, the coast of Europe. They're not really in Europe, and they're not very close to Russia, which is the primary adversary that the United States military and government uses to justify our presence in Europe. They're not they're not talking bad about Germany and Italy still. They're not talking about the neo-Nazis in Ukraine. And I mean that literally. They 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 talk about Russia and Belarus. Even if Britain offered us a base in Europe, Russia and Belarus are nowhere near Britain. We wouldn't be able to get to them. Uh, especially considering that Belarus is a landlocked country. So it would just be Russia. And the only way you get to them is through the Black Sea or the Baltic Sea. And they, if they wanted to, they could control that. They could lock us out of that in the event of a conflict. It wouldn't be hard. The geography makes it easy, actually. So what we'd witness with this fracturing caused by countries in Europe doing something that makes sense, which is to not get into a war with Russia, but instead to reach out to Russia and talk to Russia, 
I'm, I'm, and I'm saying talking to, not at. France and Germany are talking to Russia, not at Russia. And that makes sense for them to do. Russia's a big country. They're in Europe, and they, they're just gonna, they're gonna be there. That fracturing is gonna kill NATO. So if there is a war, NATO dies. But if the Ukraine war scare dies down first, well, I also think NATO dies as well, because then you're if the war scare over Ukraine dies down, well, what that means is we're not going to defend Ukraine. Is what that means. It, it means that all the all the stuff we're talking about where Russia put 100,000 troops on Ukraine's border and we have to do something about it, well, if nothing gets done about it, well, that kills the credibility of the United States and NATO effectively dies anyway. Now, both of these are very positive developments for me. Don't let, don't let me tell you different, but... It seems like NATO is at the end of its rope. And the United States and the United Kingdom are pushing to push it over the edge, is what it seems like to me. I mean, but ultimately, again, I think these events, minus a war over Ukraine, these events of all these leaders talking to Russia and talking to Putin, I think it's good. I, I really think it's good. I think it's good that there's enough common sense in European governments to avoid a war with Russia if they're not going to win. And I think it's a good thing for the Europeans to learn to live with the Russians again because Russia's always going to be there. As far as we're concerned, it's not. people predict collapses of countries all the time, and very rarely do they get it right. I mean, Engels and Marx thought that America was going to be the, the home of the revolution. Turns out it was Russia. They would have never in their right minds predicted that. Who, who would have predicted the fall, say, the Mongol Empire, or the various collapses of the Chinese dynasties? Well, the the collapse of the Austro-Hungarian Empire or the Ottoman Empire. The collapses that are predicted generally don't happen, and the collapses that no one predicts are what happens. So as far as we know, we ought to just operate as though people are going to continue the way they are and adjust accordingly. So instead of banking on this idea that Russia is this declining power, and they're just going to become irrelevant. Even though a lot of Europe has a lot of the same problems that Russia does, especially demographically speaking, uh, in which case Russia has 140 million people, Germany only has 80 million, and everyone else has less than Germany does. So Russia, in relative terms, is still going to be bigger than all of you. And as far as we're concerned... Russia's still going to be there as long as we're still alive. So it's better to learn to live with Russia if you're in Europe. It's better to learn to live with Russia than to be at constant odds with it. I mean, 
this is where Europe gets its energy from. It's in, it's Russia. Russia's right there. They have access to all this energy. They want to do business. They can do business, as is demonstrated by Turkstream, the pipeline through Ukraine, both Nord Stream 2 and Nord Stream 1. They, they're willing to do business and provide Europe with energy. Europe is a continent starved of energy resources. I mean, they have coal, but they don't really want to use coal right now. I mean, France has nuclear, but and Germany has nuclear, and Britain has nuclear, I believe, as well. I think a lot of them have nuclear, but only France and Germany had significant amounts of their energy production from nuclear. France is about 80%, I think. Germany started shutting theirs down and mothballing them. So they're going to need the oil. I mean, the natural gas from Russia. And I guess the oil, too. They can get that from Russia as well. Russia has oil. They're major oil producers. Europe's energy is in the hands of Russia. And they can get it from Russia if they work with Russia, if they talk to Russia, instead of fighting Russia, instead of being at odds with Russia, instead of being hostile with Russia. Now, that's a very, very, very big shift to go from Cold War mentality to, yeah, we're just going to purchase our oil from the Russians and we're going to sell them some of our stuff too and we're both going to make a profit. That, that's... That's a very different mindset from what we have today. But it seems like things have shifted courtesy of France and Germany and Hungary. And we're starting to move towards that direction where Russia's no longer going to be viewed as some foreign entity in Europe. But will be viewed once again as one of the great powers in Europe. And I I believe that's going to be healthier for Europe. I do believe it's going to be healthier in the long run. So, that's what I believe. And, yeah, that's what I... I think we're on track for a reconciliation with Russia. Or at the very least, Europe is. I can't tell about the United States these days. I can tell that the on the ground level the isolationism has already set in but it, it, it'll just take time for it to reach uh, say other commentators on say geopolitics other people who get into the political arena and eventually it'll make its way into the halls of our government and that'll be a glorious day but for now uh, I can observe the happenings in Europe as they are more visible and evident than what's going on in America right now. I can tell, I can show you, I can point to you things happening in Europe right now. I can't really do the same for shifts in American opinion, as well, America is sort of one place and it's kind of quiet right now. I could talk to you about uh, mandates and lockdowns, but I think we're all fed up with those. Although, speaking of mandates and lockdowns and people being fed up with them, Canada, of all places, has snapped. We have, in Canada, truckers who have staged a protest in Canada's capital, Ottawa. In, they've done this in opposition to mask mandates, vaccine mandates, 
vaccine passports, and vaccine IDs. The convoy rapidly expanded into a nationwide movement with truckers from all over Canada driving from Vancouver to Ottawa, and now they're clogging the roads in the capital and honking their horns, which is just, well, it's a peaceful protest, what can you call it? They haven't got out their cars, they're just chilling out and having themselves a good old time while clogging up the system until they get their what they want. And, well, can you blame them? Can you blame them? Why? Why should we do papers please IRL with vaccine mandates and vaccine passports? I mean, we... The virus, first of all, isn't anywhere near lethal enough to even make the case that mandates for it are justified. It's not even lethal enough for you to make the case. It's The survival rate is just so high, even among elderly. It's really people who are obese and have other pre-existing conditions that are at risk of dying. And most of the time, it's three or four pre-existing complications. And then you add COVID on top, and that's what the straw that breaks the back. But for most people... You get it. It's unpleasant for a couple weeks. And then you're back on your feet. So, it's not lethal enough to justify these mandates. The masks haven't helped anybody. Uh, if the fact that we're still in the pandemic hasn't shown, hasn't demonstrated to us all, that that's just n not working at all. Let alone the fact that the virus can still get through the mask. I saw this one guy, he put on 10 masks, he breathes on, he takes his glasses off, he has 10 masks on, takes his glasses off, puts it by his nose, he breathes, and there's still condensation on the glass, up from his glasses. There's condensation on the lens, which means that the water droplets got through, if the virus travels on water droplets, that means the virus got through 10 layers of masks. The masks aren't working. Now, people from the Spanish flu could have told you that, but those don't work. The vaccine uh, is faulty, to say the least. You have people catching COVID, even though they've gotten all the vaccines and all the boosters, and I'm... They're making a drug now, and I'm pretty sure people are, who even get that are still going to be testing positive for this. So, the vaccine isn't giving people immunity. The masks aren't working. And in spite of that, you're going to mandate something that doesn't work. Because again, the vaccine isn't giving you immunity. It's essentially a, a therapeutic at this point. They, they talk about it, it'll mitigate the symptoms. Well, that's not what a vaccine is for. The vaccine is supposed to give me immunity, not mitigate the symptoms. I could I could take an antibiotic for that. Well, maybe not an antibiotic, it's a virus. But I could take a treatment for that. And we have plenty of those. So, if the, if the vaccine doesn't give you immunity to the virus, and you, and you can even still spread it if you're vaccinated... What's the purpose of a of a mandate? What's the purpose of a vaccine passport or an ID? There really isn't one when you 
when you look at all of this in perspective. And so the truckers got fed up because they tried to cross the border from Canada into the U.S. It was demanded of them that they present their vaccine passports and IDs, and they exploded. So now we have the Freedom Convoy. The convoy rapidly expanded into a nationwide movement. Truckers from all over Canada driving from Vancouver to Ottawa. The Freedom Convoy at one point gained over $10 million in donations on their GoFundMe page. The Canadian government, however, has not taken kindly to the movement at all. Justin Trudeau has called the protesting truckers a fringe minority, and he even went on to say that they don't represent Canadians. Now, he said this right before he fled the... <laughs> right before he fled Ottawa, as the convoy approached the city, and shortly afterwards, very conveniently for him, Trudeau reportedly then tested positive for COVID and is now working remotely while in isolation. So that's spawned whole memes of him basically hiding in the basement. And, well, he, it's not like he's going to be able to defend himself from such accusations because that's what the optics are. Now, he's not technically in a basement, but it looks like he ran away. That That's... That is the optics of this. It looks like he ran away in the face of this opposition instead of facing them down, instead of talking to them, instead of meeting them and seeing and really getting to see why they're out there protesting. He's it seems like he's run away now. Maybe he wouldn't. Maybe this is just something he already had planned. And then he really did catch COVID and now he's going to be in isolation for a couple weeks. But again, the optics are that he ran. That's the optics for people in favor of the protest. That's the optics for people who are against the protest and want him to stop the protests. Those are the optics, and they're not very good for him. And if he's going to be in isolation for a couple weeks, then essentially the truckers have carte blanche to determine the narrative regarding what they're doing because he's not going to be there and whatever he says is going to be immediately discarded because it looks like he ran so he's put himself in a very bad position to address this rather than he, he's got behind it instead of getting out in front of it he's decided to get out behind it and we'll see if it blows over or if they're still there two weeks later when he comes back from isolation and he has to face the music. The music being an ensemble of truck horns and air horns. Which people have complained about the noise. Uh, but it's a protest. What can you do? So he fled the... the I, I almost said the country. He fled the capital. Um, meanwhile, the Canadian government also pressured GoFundMe to seize the funds from the donations to the convoy, uh, they want GoFundMe to give that to the government to pay for the inconvenience caused by the truckers so that the Canadian taxpayer wouldn't have to. That, that was the justification. Uh, GoFundMe instead refunded the donations to all the convoy's donors, and I imagine that they're just going to find other ways to support 
if they're willing to give the money in the first place, they're probably going to find some other way to support the Freedom Convoy. So we'll probably just see that money get moved around somewhere. Nonetheless, the truckers are still at it with their convoy, even reportedly, and this is pretty astonishing, the convoy has reportedly reached up to 50 miles long. 50 miles long. That's a lot of trucks. It's a lot of trucks for a very long way. I mean, that's, that's probably a very loud. I can see why people would be upset about the noise. My goodness. Like, I can, when a truck honks its horn from the street, like, I live next to a major street, not right next to it, but I'm like a couple blocks away from it. I can hear them from here, and I think there's a train nearby when I hear it, and I'm constantly questioning my own sanity when there's not train tracks, but I can hear the air horn, the air horn, I can hear the air horn from here. So, imagine living <laughs> in downtown Ottawa, and you have these millions of trucks honking their horns. I can understand why people would be upset, but hey... It's the Freedom Convoy. What you gonna do? I find this hilarious. And effective, apparently. Because Alberta has reportedly begun ending their lockdowns. So they're already starting to get results, although this is in the more westernmost provinces of Canada. We'll see what happens in the province of Ottawa. Not just the city, but the province of Ottawa. Well, no, no, not Ottawa. The province of Ontario. There we go. I got my Canadian geography messed up. So that that's the province that the capital's in. And we'll see if anything happens there. And, well, they're already getting results. And they've certainly gotten a lot of attention. So much attention that similar events are being planned in other countries around the world. And the one, naturally, the one I have my eyes on, is the L.A. to D.C. convoy that's being orchestrated by truckers here in America. Now, I know that their Facebook page got removed when they tried to organize it, but uh, I don't think that's going to be enough to stop what happened. I mean, there there were our American truckers participating in Canada, the the Freedom Convoy in Canada. Because there are truckers that have to cross the border back and forth. Because American Canada are very integrated like that. So there are American truckers up in Canada. So we'll probably see some Canadian truckers participate in the LA to DC convoy when it happens. Uh, Facebook probably won't be the last page, uh, major social media platform to ban them. Because um, governments really... It seems governments really don't like it when these things happen. The Canadian government even asked the U.S. government to try to do something about the convoy. And the U.S. government just sort of pretended that the convoy doesn't exist. But Facebook has banned them. It, it seems like this is sort of a, a checkmate. That, that's what it looks like. This convoy stuff is sort of a checkmate to all of the really strange and quite frankly authoritarian COVID policies 
that have been enacted. And it's just a checkmate that they, the people enacting these policies can't get around. They can't do anything about it. They just have to shut up and take it. And they don't like that. So they either give up. They either start giving up on the COVID stuff and the lockdowns. Or they double, they try to double down and fail. And I'll also add that with countries, uh, I believe all of all of the Nordic countries have now undone their lockdowns as well, following in Sweden, following Sweden's model. Denmark, uh, well, actually, really following Denmark because Sweden was always not locked down, so they're really following Denmark here because Denmark was the one that undid their lockdowns recently, following the UK. It seems like the dam is being broken, but it also proves me right, because I, I, I mentioned early on that lockdown measures and the pandemic and were not synonymous with one another. The pandemic hasn't gone away, but the lockdowns are. COVID-19 hasn't gone away. It's always been there. It's always probably always going to be with us but it's very weak anyway very weak so we don't really have to worry about it but lockdowns and pandemic are not synonymous so as lockdowns are ending but the virus is still here well that tells everyone that this was artificial the lockdowns were artificial all the damage caused by it was artificial it wasn't the pandemic it was government policy so as the lockdowns come undone, the sort of correlation between pandemic and lockdown will sort of break, and people will see COVID for what it is. That'll also be a good thing. Uh, but again, I see lots of lockdowns ending courtesy of similar f- uh, freedom convoys happening in other countries. I'm looking forward to the LA to DC convoy. I feel that the U.S. government will try something dirty to stop it, but I don't think that whatever they do will be enough to stop what's coming. The honking has begun, and that is all I have for you today. I do hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast. The world is changing. It seems the lockdowns are ending And we are going to have fun watching it all together. Now, I've been your host, Harshan Wade. And you've been listening to This This Week in Geopolitics. So, till we meet again next Monday, servus. (laughs) 